The reading this morning is from Peter's second letter. So it's 2 Peter, chapter 2, and the main section is verses 12 to 19. And if you want to follow it in the Church Bibles, it's on page 1223. It's a section entitled False Teachers and Their Destruction. Uh, But it's quite a complex section um, and it doesn't really split down well into just that part of it. So just for context for those people who weren't here last week uh, and perhaps a reminder for those who were here, uh, I'm just going to read uh, the first three verses as an introduction uh, and then we'll go on from there. So verses 1 to 3 to start with. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing with destruction, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Now, Neil preached on the uh, next section last week, which is verses 4 to 11. So, just as a, uh, two points on that, and then we'll move forward into the main section. Uh, if I read uh, the first two, well, verse 4 and 5, it's, it's saying, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment? If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others? Uh, And then, if I go through to the last part of that section, and then start reading from verse 9, hopefully you're following this. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment, while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature, and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like beasts they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, revelling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Baor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. 
They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Thanks be to God. Well, there you are. That passage wasn't easy to read, and uh, I don't suppose it will be easy to listen to, but hopefully it will be profitable. This is the atmosphere in which we live today, both within society and indeed the church, no less. The former uh, English cricketing captain, Mike Gatting, once said this, I believe in a bit of everything. God, the supernatural, ghosts, superstitions, and UFOs. I like to keep my options open. That is not an unusual uh, perspective that people have if you were to genuinely engage just beyond the superficial. Because ours is a culture of choice. You choose. It's a supermarket culture. And there's plenty to choose from. And as long as you're sincere, surely that's the main thing. If that is so, and I suggest to you that it is, then how are we as Christian people going to sustain our commitment to the proclamation making known of Jesus Christ as the unique, exclusive and sufficient saviour of the world? That we take him seriously, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And yet, this is the challenge, particularly from the reading, which rightly I suspect makes us feel a little uncomfortable. How do we do it with two things? How do we do it with sensitivity on the one hand and courage on the other? Too much sensitivity and we can be lacking in courage which makes us rather sentimental. Too much courage and we're lacking in sensitivity, which makes us overly abrasive and confrontational. Though essentially the truth is there's much less of the latter these days. In today's passage, it addresses head-on that challenge for us. And it doesn't duck the issue as perhaps we might be tempted to do. Here's the truth of it. When God inspired the writers of Scripture, he never once whispered to them, look, easy up on that. Go quiet on that. And you actually don't need to mention that too often, indeed, if not at all. Go easy on this. After all, we wouldn't want people to be offended or upset, would we? Suppose, God forbid, though for some here and some who are not here today, who have been to see an informed doctor who says, you have a big problem and we're going to have to have radical surgery and we're going to have to cut away a part of your infection. It's going to be terrible and painful 
and long-term in its consequences. You even have treatment that will inhibit and debilitate. But if you don't, you'll die. What are you going to do? That is one big offend, isn't it? We, we can think things through clearly physically, but somehow spiritually we can be a bit um, woolly at the edges. Here's the problem then. Whoever takes the Bible seriously will know that it's a difficult book. Exceedingly difficult it is to me anyway. And indeed, look, if you come to open this reference which Lionel read to us, just let's have a quick look at this and let's just illustrate to see uh, what we mean by that. Peter himself, here he is, he's trying to go for the jugular and in his own admission in chapter 3 of uh, 2 Peter, he says this, speaking about a fellow preacher, Paul. And he says in verse 15, what do you make of this? Bear in mind that our Lord's patient means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave you. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Tell me about it, you say. They are hard to understand. Some things are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people distort and so on, and that's the big issue here. So, let's be clear. The Bible is a wonderful book, it's a complex book, and oftentimes it's a disturbing and very difficult book. So here's the question. Okay. Here's our society when choice prevails, and we wouldn't want to upset people. When is intolerance... A virtue, is the question, when is intolerance a virtue, a good thing? And when is tolerance a vice, a bad thing? If you were talking about somebody and you said, they are ter terribly tolerant, you would know that you're complimenting. And if you were talking about somebody and you said, they're terribly intolerant, it's not a compliment. Now, I hope I'm provoking you to really think now, particularly in this context here. I'm not saying we go around being difficult and complicated. Indeed, some people are, and so much for that. But there's the question. When is intolerance a virtue? Why aren't we intolerant, intolerant about, for example, the silent holocaust of abortion on demand? Wouldn't it be a good thing if evangelicals rose up and were intolerant about that. But we've come used to it. It's part of choice. You choose. There are lots of examples. And in some situations, I think you'll agree that intolerance is an imperative. So what's the difference? Well... When truth is at stake, when truth is at stake, we cannot live by lies, because if we do, we begin to live a lie. Not only what we believe, but the whole of our lives. Well, with that sort of introduction, let's look very quickly at three um, headings that help us to deal now with coming closer, heretics in the church, not outside there inside. First of all, we would need to say this. 
from, and we'll break up the passage as it comes in the PowerPoint in front of you, thinking about these heretics first. They convey fullness, but actually they're empty. It's a proverb, isn't it? Empty vessels often make most noise, and they do. They make plenty of noise, and you have that in verses 12 to 14. People driven by depraved appetites that are insatiable, almost addictive to the appetite that drives them. And do you notice that this is a direct assault on false teachers, on leaders who influence people? They are if you read carefully here, Peter is actually saying, if you live and think like an animal, you'll die like one. The abattoir is a posh word for the slaughterhouse. Termination is a comfortable word for killing life. We get used to those things. You cannot have a relationship with a good and gracious God without becoming a better person, without living oftentimes in the uncomfortable zone. If I believe what I believe, how can I live as I live? If I truly believe and think like this, why do I say and do that? I think you, any believer will know that. It is attention. These teachers convey fullness. They're very popular. But they actually are empty. When I was a student, I used to go listen to William Barclay, who was quite a controversialist uh, in Scotland. He was called the workman's theologian. Uh, I admired him immensely, and he was a great Greek scholar, teacher, and professor. And commenting on verse 14, in, it says, these people are trained in greed, so it's not only morality, but the driving force to have more money. Experts in greed. And it isn't the amount that you have, it's the amount of value you put on what you have. So nobody's knocking rich people and saying, isn't it lovely to be poor? Doesn't, that's not the point. This is what he said. This is his comment here. I quote, There is something self-destroying in selfish pleasure. It makes such pleasure to be the be-all and the end-all of life. It is... In the end, a suicidal policy. If a man dedicates himself to these selfish pleasures alone, if he makes them his only joy, he ruins his health, wrecks his constitution, destroys his mind and character, and begins his experience of hell while he's still upon earth. That's an amazing thing for him to say as a well-respected churchman. And our society is obsessive and neurotic about money and Europe and so on, and pensions. Secondly, they forsake the truth and go astray. You see this in verses 15 and 16. For the sake of time, you can read these verses yourself. Now, this is, 
It's a strange reference to Balaam in the Old Testament. He was an Old Testament prophet of the Gentiles. He knew the right way. He would be preaching a sermon like I am. But he deliberately chose, we think the choice is a buzzword for today, it always has been the same, he chose the opposite way. And the comment on his life is, it's madness. It's sheer madness. Look, look at verse 15. Um, here we are. They have left the straight way, this is speaking about these false teachers, and followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. And whatever you, you make of this, that through a donkey he was challenged. God can even use donkeys to correct people. But the point is this, it's sheer madness. But conversely for us, a healthy Christian living and relating meaningful with each other, and may I make a plea, that's where the home groups are so good that it's a level of talking, of interacting and sharing and listening and praying together. Christians living and relating comes when God's commands are seen as curbstones. That's what people complain about so often. Oh, the Bible is so full of rules. Isn't the handbook for driving full of rules? And where would we be without them? Chaos. Curbstones on the highway of love. Or if you like, the motorway of life. Barriers have got stronger and bigger because when people have accidents and catapult onto the other side, create carnage and destruction on other people. You can't say, this is what I believe and it's private. It's terribly public and it affects all your relationships. How often we say it, if what you believe doesn't matter, well, it doesn't matter what you believe. When we are living and relating, it comes when God's commands are seen as curbstones on the highway of love like the cat's eyes in the dark of night, keeping us on the right side of the road. Here's a, 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 a quote which is, which is powerful and would be excellent to discuss in small groups, and it's this. To be enslaved to oneself is the heaviest of all servitude. To be a slave to oneself is the heaviest of all servitude. In other words, the Christian gospel not only saves us from our sin, but from ourselves. How often does self get in the way in family, in our relationship with children, in, in, in the wider family, in marriage and work and colleagues? It's not simply servitude to sex or money or pride or the ego or power but ourselves. It's very interesting that um, for those of you who, who were reading your papers yesterday, uh, we'll have the report on the, the English football team who had gone to Auschwitz. It was a day out there in Poland. I visited Auschwitz 32 years ago. It's a place I would never want to go back to ever, ever again. 
It is man's inhumanity on a scale that beggars belief. And there are people in Germany to this very day who deny that it ever happened. So horrendous it is. And what was interesting about it, the comment and the paper and the press and the media with these uh, important so-called football players, that they were left alone, that they were moving out of their bubble to think about how people live the way that they do. And it starts with an indoctrination that people are less than human and therefore it's justified. I prepared the sermon on Thursday and I was interested to read this article yesterday. And I was reminded that every diary that I have, I always begin by quoting Viktor Frankl, who wrote only one book, a very uh, astute uh, psychiatrist and medic who survived Auschwitz just. Man's Search for Meaning, the book is called. And a phrase that has governed my life, I put it in the diary, the first page, and from time to time go back to it, and it's highlighted for my sake, for nobody else's, and it's this. Choose one's attitude, the ultimate freedom, the ultimate freedom. What is my attitude to these things that we've mentioned? His whole family were destroyed in Auschwitz. He could have come out of there distraught, which he was, with an embittered spirit and he saw among his fellow prisoners, how often the attitude to the same situation was almost the deciding factor whether they would survive or not. It's an excellent book that uh, is worthy of anybody to read. Choose one's attitude, the ultimate freedom. And what about our attitude to ourselves as we look in the mirror? Not my brother, not my sister. Me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And if you read the articles of the English football players, it's, it's incredibly humbling that there they were with their own private thoughts, seeing pictures of uh, shoes of, of little children who were sent to the, the gas chambers, things that we don't like to talk about. Six million people. It's quite something, isn't it? And it begins with how we think about what we believe and how we relate to people and to God. And lastly, these false teachers, they promise freedom and liberty, but become slaves. And here's the interesting picture language that um, Peter uses. Look at verse 17. He says, he uses, and th this will be an interesting thing to debate in our home groups this, this week. Um, in verse 17 in particular. These men are springs without water, mists driven by storm, blackest darkness is reserved for them. What... What can we say as we try to round, round this off? Well, these vivid uh, pictures that, that we have here, let's try to stay with them for, for a moment. 
Some of you, and uh, Elena and Sarah particularly, will know of what it is like to live in a very, very hot country who are utterly dependent on the rains. It is a matter of life and death. And can you imagine, just if you can, we have so much water, don't we? But in these countries where they can go a year, two years, with searing heat, to go to a well in order for your family just to survive. It's a beautiful well. It's painted white. And you roll down the bucket, and, uh, but it's just empty. That's what Peter is saying in his culture, which would ring bells much more than ours. That's what they're like. Three vivid pictures. So let's have some practical tips. Number one. Refuse blindly to accept someone else's teaching just because uh, they've been blessed. Ask yourself. Stop and wait long enough to look at Scripture and consider. Secondly, look. Take a careful look at the life of the person who is speaking. And ask yourself, are the fruits of the Spirit evident? Is there a real sense of true humility, love, self-control? Nobody's perfect, but we should look for certain things. We are to stop and wait. We are to look and think. And any speaker, preacher, parent worthy of their salt want their children and congregation to think independently of them. We don't like a dependence culture. Stand on your own feet. Think for yourself. Go out into this world. Live your life. Stop and wait. Think and look. Listen and learn. Pay attention to the terms a person uses and listen to what often they don't use. Here's an illustration. We were trying to do this with the children's talk and we come to it now. There is a banking association in the USA that uh, sponsored a two-week training program. And the training program was to help the tellers detect counterfeit notes. We had two, a sample of two this morning. The program was quite unique and uncomplicated. Never during the two-week training did the tellers even look at a counterfeit note as we did this morning. Nor did they listen to any lectures about the dangers and characteristics of these notes. All they did as part of their initiation into the banking world and their training was for two weeks, day in, day out, to handle authentic currency of all kinds. That's all. That's not very complicated, is it? And what we try to do as Christian people is this, that when we, we, we become more familiar with God's word, when we talk and we share and we listen and learn and we grow, that we are more discerning, that somehow we handle God's word in a better way because our hearts and minds are exposed to it. 
Let's try to conclude as we think about this difficult part of Peter's letter. I would suggest three things that we can do as we close. Number one, walk closer to God. Uh, that may be a bit more uncomfortable, but do it. Keep company with him a bit closer. In other words, here you're in a dilemma. And you say to yourself, would, would God really bless me here? Or do I need to step back a bit? Why am I still holding that grudge? Go closer to God and he'll tell you. What's that got to do with false teaching? Everything. Healthy teaching produces healthy living and healthy relating. Walk close with God. Cultivate an open relationship with Him. Secondly, and we are here this morning, and surely this is such a good exercise for all of us. Heed the counsel of His Word. Yes, it's a difficult book. Yes, it creates problems. Yes, sometimes it seems to contradict itself. Admit all of that. And yet, at the same time, heed the counsel of his word. Pay a bit closer, more closer attention. How many of us get daily notes? How many of us are, are able to just say, well, Lord, today I've got this and that. I just would like you to speak to me. And how timely often it is. And lastly and thirdly, Pay notice to the prompting of your own heart as well. This isn't simply about winning minds. It is that. But it's more. I suspect the reason the Bible comes into criticism by people is this, that it is a book that addresses the heart. And it says this about the heart. Look at humanity. Look at our track record. The heart it's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Say that on St. Valentine's Day. Who's going to listen to you? Or any day for that matter. And yet, look at our lives. And it is surely the gospel that addresses the heart and says, a new heart I will give you. Respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Or in, indeed, even if you sense something true being taken to an extreme, allow his spirit to help you. Be open, but not gullible. Be teachable, but know what you believe. Be confident, but not insensitive. This is our world. This is where we have to live out our lives. Well, let's have the quiet confidence to keep in step with God's Spirit. It's interesting, isn't it, that hymn that we sung by Bonhoeffer, a courageous martyr who once spoke of the church that he loved and gave his life for it, the Lutheran church. And in his day he coined this phrase, which is, Incredible that they were peddling cheap grace. 
What do we know about real forgiveness? Real relationships. Without pretending. Maybe it's too costly. Maybe just live the pretense. Keep things on the surface. Keep people at a distance. Only ricochet from them rather than relate to them. If you do relate, you'll be vulnerable. But you'll be the better for it. And you'll know the truth. And it'll set you free from yourself. From all these things that come and inhibit our lives. This is God's word for us. We do well to heed it. Let's pray together.